This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 138. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and let you know what's going on with my life and my writing. So, let's get things moving with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part six of my Metamore City novella, Whispers in the Wood. If you aren't up to date on the podcast, you should go back to episode 133 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Abby Preston and Jaina Starson have successfully made contact with the ghost of Rosanna Venturi, a 16th century Pyralian woman, and the wife of Amelia Venturi, the greatest lutier in history. Rosanna's spirit has been bound to one of Emilio's creations, the violin called Threnody. This cursed instrument was created with the help of a powerful fairy called the Leonanshi, which feeds on the blood and life force of creative people, while also enhancing their art. Rosanna and countless other spirits have been imprisoned in the violin for centuries, which feeds on their pain in order to create a sense of catharsis in the audience. Their long torment has twisted these spirits into a dark, tortured entity that is powerful enough to kill people, and Threnody has left a trail of bodies behind it as its owner, Isaac Wells, traveled across the empire. Abby, Isaac, and Janus need to break Threnody's power before it kills again. Freeing Rosanna is the key to that, but in order to do so, they need to make Threnody's audience understand Rosanna's plight. Isaac puts on one final performance, and with the help of Abby's telepathic powers, they create a link between the audience and Rosanna's ghost. Abby and each of the listeners find themselves thrust into the life and memories of Rosanna, seeing her story through her own eyes. They watch as Emilio wins the patronage of a local nobleman, and he and Rosanna move to the Pyralian capital. There, Rosanna is marginalized and excluded by the same nobles who praise her husband's achievements. She has more money than she would ever know what to do with, but she is desperately alone. In this vulnerable state, she falls under the influence of the Leonanshi, who has disguised herself as an elf woman called Melodia. Not recognizing the fairy for what she is, Rosanna tells Melodia her name, and this gives the Leonanshi power over her. Emilio's fame and success grow, drawing the attention of a mysterious man named Malcolm. He comes to Emilio's home in the middle of the night, bearing an extraordinary job offer. He charges Emilio to create the Divinities, a set of eighteen violins attuned to the power and ethos of the eighteen fallen gods of the Pantheon. In exchange, Malcolm will pay Emilio a fortune in Mithril and Emilio's reputation will be secured forever as the greatest master of his craft. Though Rosanna is afraid of Malcolm, Emilio agrees to take the job. But Malcolm is a demanding patron, 
and he angrily rejects Emilio's first two attempts at crafting the divinities. Malcolm's rebuke shatters Emilio's confidence, and soon Rosanna finds her husband weeping in his workshop, surrounded by broken and discarded violins. It is at this moment that Melodia reappears, offering Emilio secret knowledge that will allow him to fulfill Malcolm's commission. Emilio is desperate, and he quickly agrees to submit himself to Melodia's teaching, not realizing that he has made himself into the Leonanchi's latest victim. Whispers in the Wood A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 6 Oh, this is fine workmanship. Very fine indeed. Rosanna hung back in the doorway to the workshop as Emilio conversed with his shadowy patron. The note of approval in Malcolm's voice made her relax just a little. The violin let out one long, clear note, startlingly loud. The image of a howling wolf passed briefly through her mind. Excellent work, Venturi. This is a worthy tribute to the Dark Mother. Thank you, sir, Emilio said. Her husband sounded relieved. I'll have the next one ready in about a month. Very good, Malcolm said. A bag of coins jangled and came to rest on a table. I shall take no more of your time, maestro. Here is your payment. Much obliged, sir. A good night to you, sir. And to you. The door on the far side of the workshop opened and closed. Rosanna stuck her head into the room and saw Emilio slumped over the table. Sweat beaded out on his brow, and he was breathing heavily. Rosanna went to him, embracing him from behind. That is not the man, she murmured. No, Emilio whispered. He is not. But he is my patron. Eli, help us. Rosanna pressed her face up against his back. You're trembling, love. I'm just tired. You're always tired now, Rosanna said. She tried to keep her tone gentle, but she couldn't hide the worry she felt. What is Melodia making you do in here? A pause. What I must, Emilio said at last. What the work requires. The work is eating you alive. Rosanna turned him around and put a hand to his cheek, where the skin had gone sallow and creased with newfound wrinkles. This is worse than when you worked for Count Fellini. It is worth the cost, Emilio insisted. These instruments are beyond anything I have ever created, beyond anything I ever hoped to create. They will be my legacy, my gift to the world. Rosanna put a hand to his chest. What of your gift to me, Emilio? She asked softly. For months now, you have been too tired to even make love. He looked away, as shame covered his features. I... I do not think it will do any good, Rosanna. In all our years together, you have never... He bit down hard on the words, stopping himself. 
I do not think I can give you children, he said instead. His voice was low and full of an old, deep pain. Rosanna felt that pain as well. In truth, she felt it more deeply than a man ever could. She rested her head on his shoulder and reached up under his tunic, placing her hand against his bare skin. I know, she said softly. If it were meant to happen, it would have happened by now. But that was not what I meant. She stroked her fingers lovingly over his chest and paused, frowning. There was a change in the texture of her husband's skin, like thin stripes running down his chest. What is that? Emilio suddenly grew tense. Nothing, he said shortly. Just a scar. A scar? Emilio, my love, you never had a scar there before. What happened? Emilio stood, brushing her aside. An accident in the workshop. One of my tools slipped and cut me. What? When did this happen? Why didn't you tell me? It looked worse than it was, Emilio said dismissively. I didn't want you to worry. Small chance of that if you won't tell me when you are hurt, Rosanna snapped. Her fear and anger made the words come out harsher than she had intended. A silence fell between them. I am sorry, Emilio said at last. So am I. But Emilio, please, this madness has to stop. He turned away from her again. It will stop. When I am done with this commission, that will be the end of it. I'll take apprentices and teach them the trade. But these eighteen, these divinities, they will be my last. Rosanna lowered her head. It wasn't the answer she wanted, but she knew her husband too well to have expected anything else. All right. I'm going to bed, Emilio said after another long moment. Will you join me? She nodded. In a moment, love. Go on. After he had gone, she sat in the workshop for a long time, thinking. She looked up at the tools hanging from their pegs on the ceiling, and at the others resting on workbenches where Emilio had left them. But try as she might, she could not imagine how any of them could have created the long, thin scars on her husband's chest. Every woman had her breaking point. Rosanna reached hers on a moonless night, six months later. Emilio had been reduced to a shadow of his former self. He had stopped showing interest in food, in wine, in his nephew's children, even in music, unless it came from those damnable violins he was crafting for Malcolm. He ate and slept in only the barest amounts necessary to keep himself alive and working. Whenever he entered the workshop, Melodia was already there waiting for him. She had told Rosanna they must not be disturbed, and for months Rosanna had accepted this. She often complained to Melodia about the toll the work was taking on her husband, but when the elf woman spoke, her objections seemed to evaporate. No longer. Whatever witchery inhabited the woman's words, Rosanna would not give her the chance to use it. She opened a flask of holy water she had purchased from the local priests, dabbed it onto two small tufts of pure white wool, and stuck them in her ears. She took up her new crucifix, a heavy one made of cold wrought iron, 
and slipped the chain around her neck, so the sign of the yew tree rested over her heart. Then she took her longest, sharpest kitchen knife, just in case, she told herself, and went to the workshop door. With a long, deep breath and a silent prayer for protection, she gave the door a hard shove and pushed her way inside. Nothing could have prepared her for what she saw inside. Her husband lay supine atop his largest workbench, surrounded by strange lines and symbols that had to be magical. He was naked, and his bare chest oozed blood from a dozen shallow, swiping cuts. And there was Melodia, mounted atop him in the throes of ecstasy, her long red hair unbound and writhing like a nest of serpents. Rosanna screamed, the sound tearing itself unbidden from her throat. Emilio showed no response, but the elf woman, no, the fairy, Rosanna realized, looked over her shoulder at Rosanna and laughed, a cold and mocking sound. Her eyes glowed with an inhuman green light. The pupils slitted like a cat's. As Rosanna watched in horror, the fairy extended a long, forked tongue and lapped up her husband's blood. Something broke inside her, and Rosanna rushed at the fairy, raising the knife, shrieking in incoherent fury. The fairy flicked a hand at her, a sharp, dismissive gesture, and a wave of force caught Rosanna and threw her across the room. She landed in the pile of scrap wood in the corner, stunned and aching. The knife stood in the wall above her, buried to the hilt. Did you think that genius came for free? the fairy asked, mocking her. It must be paid for with blood and life. He gave himself to me willingly, Rosanna. He is mine. The fairy's use of her name did not bewitch her this time but the words did damage enough on their own. As she looked at Emilio, captive and powerless under the creature's spell, Rosanna knew that she had already lost. She fled back into the house and hid herself in the indoor washing room, an extravagance, to be sure, but one that Emilio had easily been able to afford after his time with Count Vellini. She sobbed uncontrollably, the grief pouring out of her broken heart. The fairy was right. Her husband was lost to her, now and forever. She would never be able to match the terrible, alien beauty of the thing that had captured her husband's heart. Unless... Her eyes fell on the straight razor that her husband used to shave. Blood and life, she whispered. Paid for with blood and life. Almost without knowing what she was doing, Rosanna removed her clothes. She took up the razor in her trembling hand and climbed into the bathtub. She plugged the drain, then unfolded the razor and stared at her reflection in the blade. By blood and life, her husband had bartered away his soul for genius. By blood and life... She would buy him back. The vision faded, and with it the song came to an end. As before, there was not a dry eye in the house, 
But this time, the people wept not for their own pain, not for the loss of a loved one, or for the suffering inflicted on them by an uncaring universe, but for the grief of one woman. Their hearts swelled with compassion for this lost and lonely soul, a woman who had lost her beloved to one who had claimed to be a friend, a woman who had, at the last, given all she had in a desperate, futile attempt to win him back. The maestro spoke. Rosanna gave her life to save her husband, but she failed. Emilio Venturi went mad upon his wife's death. Consumed with guilt, he sought to honor her memory through the creation of this instrument. The fairy who had captured him perverted that noble effort, and what should have been her homage became her prison. The pain you have heard in Threnody's music is her pain, amplified and perpetuated through the centuries. And while many have been healed by the power of this instrument, I will not be the channel for something that heals one person's pain by exploiting another's. The man bowed his head, and silence fell in the recital hall. No one in the audience dared to break it. At last, Abby spoke for the first time since the performance began. You have all seen Rosanna's story. Remember it. Tell it to your friends and to your children. Remember her sacrifice and how her pain has brought you healing. Remember and honor her. The people in the audience murmured agreement. Abby turned to the edge of the stage and gestured to the ushers waiting there. They began circulating through the crowd, passing out small cups of red wine. The last of these was brought to Abby, who held it aloft before the crowd. To Rosanna Venturi, she said, as her eyes filled with tears. Let her name and her love be remembered always. As one, the crowd resounded. To Rosanna Venturi! They drank together and without another word, the spotlights were extinguished. The people filed out of the hall, speaking quietly to one another of the story they had heard, a story that, Abby knew, would be fixed in their minds forever. When the last members of the audience had gone, a pale, luminous form took shape on the stage. The ghost of Rosanna Venturi looked out over the empty seats with an expression of wonder on her tear-lined face. They listened, she said, as if in amazement. They heard. And they will remember, Abby promised. The suggestion I put behind it will make sure of that. Word about you will spread. In five years, we'll never hear about the genius of Amelia Venturi without hearing about the sacrifice of Rosanna along with it. Rosanna nodded once. It is just. He was a great man, and I have never wished to see his achievements taken from him. I only wanted to be known, Abby suggested gently, to be loved as you loved. She gave the other woman a sad smile. We all want that. The ghost returned the smile. I suppose so. Abby hesitated, then asked, do you think you can forgive him now? Rosanna closed her eyes and nodded. Yes, he did not mean to imprison me, 
I understand that now. What he did, he did for love. I only wish that I could tell him I forgive him. You may be able to, Abby said. He could be waiting for you on the other side. I hope so, Rosanna said, looking up at the ceiling. I can feel the place beyond calling me. She looked over at Threnody, which Wells held on his lap beside her. The glowing red chain still ran from her ankle to the violin. She reached down and took the chain in her hands. A brief tug, and the chain came loose and vanished into smoke. A rush of wind ran through the recital hall, pungent with the scent of cinnamon. The Leonanshi appeared on the stage behind them, her lovely face dark with fury. I am most displeased, children. Her voice was like ice, and Abby's heart felt like it froze in her chest at the sound of it. Rosanna was not impressed. She got squarely in the fay woman's face, putting her hands on her hips. As am I, Melodia, and with far more cause, I think. And these people are under my protection. The fairy rolled her eyes. Out of my way, you will-o'-wisp. I must have words with my protege and his troublesome little friend. She stepped forward and brushed her hand at Rosanna, as if she could blow her away like a puff of fog. Rosanna caught her wrist and stopped her dead in her tracks. She was no more solid than she had been a moment before, but the spirit's grip held the fairy like iron. And like iron, it burned her. The Leonanshi recoiled from Rosanna, cradling her injured arm. What is this? the fairy hissed. What it is, said Janus, emerging from behind the curtains, is your debt. He strode forward confidently, a lemisil still in its sheath. They wouldn't need the sword this time, something they had realized as soon as Rosanna had told them her story. The Leonanshi looked incredulous. Debt? What debt? Your debt to me, Rosanna said, her voice just as cold as the fairies had been a moment before. I gave you my blood, my life, and four hundred and fifty-six years of my pain. You accepted these gifts. You used them to create your art, to draw new servants to yourself, to spread their fame and the glory of their achievements. You know the laws that govern the noble Fay, Janus said. Any she who accepts a gift is bound by his debt until it is repaid. He nodded toward Rosanna. Now that she's free of your little soul trap, Rosanna called in her marker. As the appointed mediator for this district, I recognize the claim. The fact that she's dead doesn't make a bit of difference. The fairy glared at all of them, but there was no longer any terror in the sight of it. With her debt unsatisfied and all of them under Rosanna's protection, she was powerless to touch them. What? she grated. Do you want, mortal spirit? I place a geish upon you, Rosanna said. You shall not raise a hand against man or woman, child or beast. You shall bind no spirit against its will. You shall only feed on a mortal's life and blood if he give them willingly. Where before you have spread grief and sorrow, I now charge you to spread joy and delight. 
that your talents be used to uplift and enhearten the race of men, and not to remind them of their suffering. This cannot be, the Leonanshi protested. Pain is essential to art. It is only the suffering of mortals that gives their work weight and substance. Rosanna smiled grimly. Then you must learn to broaden your horizons, Melodia. Think of it as a challenge, a test of your skills as a muse. The fairy ground her teeth together. How long must I labor under these ridiculous strictures? I gave you 456 years of pain, Rosanna said. I demand from you 456 years of joy. Do this, and keep all the conditions of my geish, and your debt shall be satisfied. Do I have your word? The fay woman shot an accusing look over at Janus. You find these terms reasonable, mediator? He shrugged nonchalantly. They seem fair to me. Of course, he added. If you find them too burdensome, I could impose an alternate punishment. Say, banishment from the mortal plane for the next five thousand years? The fairy actually winced at that. Very well. She turned back to the ghost. You have my word, O wife of Emilio Venturi. The word is given, Janus said formally. The geish is set. This parley is closed. And so is my business here, Rosanna said. She rose up into the air, spinning around to look at each of them in turn. Farewell, my friends. I go now to the realms beyond, and pray that I shall find my Emilio waiting for me. She beckoned to the violin, and a host of fainter ghosts poured out of it, four hundred and fifty-six years' worth of captured spirits. I lead these others with me, that they might find the rest they deserve. Abby, Wells, and Janus all bowed to her. Farewell, Rosanna, Abby said. May Eli make the path straight for you to paradise. Rosanna beamed at her. And for you, my friend, peace be with you. A brilliant light appeared above them, as if someone had slid open a door to another world. Rosanna and the other spirits passed through it in the blink of an eye, and then it snapped shut again. And good riddance, the Leonanchi muttered. She turned to Wells and extended a hand. Well, come along, Isaac. We have a heavy geish to repay, and I would as soon begin it quickly. Wells lowered his head and sighed. I am sorry, my lady, but I can't go with you. The fairy snorted. Nonsense. I agree it will be more difficult to make a name for you under that woman's conditions, but I've no doubt my talents will be sufficient. No, Threnody, Wells said. It was little more than a whisper. She glared at him. That is not my name. Of course it isn't, Wells said. He sat down heavily on his stool, looking like a worn-out husk of a man. But it's the name you earned, isn't it? Threnody, the funeral dirge, the song of death. Mortal suffering is the only thing you know how to find beauty in. Everything else is meaningless to you. He shook his head. And now you've been charged to give the world four hundred years of joy and delight? I truly hope you can do it. 
Perhaps by the end, you'll be able to see beauty in more than just our pain. But I cannot help you, Threnody. I cannot give the world joy and delight. There is none in me to give. Isaac. For the first time, the Fay woman looked truly sad. She came over and knelt before him. She placed a gentle hand on his knee, then reached up with the other to caress his face. I could teach you, Joy. She spoke softly, almost tentatively, and now Ebby realized that the bond of affection between Eleananchi and her host was more than just one way. Wells mattered to her, in a way that other humans never could. You're wrong about me, Isaac, the fairy insisted. I do know of beauty and other things. Come with me, and I will show you wonders to make your heart sing. Gently, Wells reached up and removed her hand from his cheek. Perhaps you could, for another, he said. But to me, you will always be Threnody. I will look at you and see the monster who created an instrument that kills, who imprisoned an innocent woman for over four centuries for the sake of art. His face hardened. Gods curse me if I let myself learn joy from such a creature as that. Isaac, please. There were tears running down the Leonanchi's face now, and Abby didn't think they were for show. If I leave you, you'll die. I'm dying anyway, Wells said. Your feeding doesn't stop it, it just slows it down. And I would rather live six weeks as a free man than six years with you for company. He brushed her off and walked away from her, up to the edge of the stage. Leave me now, Threnody. Before, I wouldn't look on you because I was in awe of your beauty. Now, I can't stomach the sight of you. For several long seconds, the Fay woman stared at him. Then she put her head between her knees and sobbed. Abby had never heard anyone sound so wretched, so lost and alone. She found herself moving toward the woman to comfort her. Janus stopped her with a hand on her shoulder. Leave her to her grief, he said. She's caused enough of it. She deserves to know how it feels. Deliberately, Abby reached up and lifted his hand off of her. If she is human enough to feel grief, then she's human enough to receive compassion. She is evil, Abby, Janus hissed. She's a manipulative, murdering psychopath. She doesn't deserve your pity. Abby gave him a long, deliberate look. You can't teach kindness with a whip, Janus. Janus took a step back his expression suddenly going blank. But whether it was from her words, or the way she said them, or simply from the look in her eyes, Abby didn't know. He stared at her searchingly for a long moment, then turned and walked away, following Wells out of the hall. Then Abby went to the Fay woman and wrapped her arms around her. She tensed against Abby's touch at first, but then melted into the embrace the sobs racking her whole body. The others left, and the hall went dark. But still Abby held her, long into the night.
When Abby came to the boarding house the next morning, Wells had already packed his things and was giving the flat a final cleaning. Moving on? she asked. Moving, at any rate, Wells said ruefully. Moving on would imply progress towards some sort of destination, apart from the one we're all moving toward. Abby flinched at that. She hadn't intended for the conversation to come around so quickly to his illness, but she supposed it was only natural for him to be thinking about it. Do you have anyone to stay with? Any friends or family? He sat down on the arm of the couch. Not really, no. I never married. First I was too young, then I was too busy, and then I was too old. He shook his head. And academia is a lonely world, a bunch of swelled heads full of our own knowledge and achievements, all desperately trying to impress one another with how clever we are. True partnerships are damnably rare, and it's even rarer to find one that goes beyond the professional. The last time I had a friend close enough to come sleep on his couch for a few weeks, I was probably still in graduate school. I'm sorry to hear that. Abby came over and leaned against the couch beside him, putting her hand atop his. Why don't you come and stay with my family for a while? One and a half men? Three and a half women? Nine kids from four to zero? It's a little crazy sometimes, but never boring. Wells laughed. <laughs> Only in Metamore could I get invited to a house with one and a half men in it. Abby grinned. Is that a yes? The old professor looked down at his hands, visibly self-conscious. It all sounds lovely, my dear, but I hate to impose. You won't. Look, if it's the money you're worried about, don't even think about it. Between this job and the one I did for Janus last month, you are not going to be any kind of strain on our budget. She gave him a sad little smile. Also, we have connections at Eastside General Hospital. For when you need it. Wells closed his eyes and let out a long breath. I'm not accustomed to charity, Abby. Come on. You're not a fairy. You're not going to be bound to a geish just because somebody helps you. Besides, you've helped a lot of people over the last year. As far as I'm concerned, you've earned this. She squeezed his hand. Please? It would mean a lot to me. I love music and I know I could learn so much from you. He smiled. Appealing to my vanity, you do understand academia. Abby winked at him. <laughs> Whatever it takes. He was silent a moment longer, then looked at her. You're sure your family won't mind? Already okayed it before I made the offer, she said. They're looking forward to meeting you. Lila, Dane, and Ava want Uncle Isaac to tell them bedtime stories. Oh, now that is dirty pool. Like I said, whatever it takes. He glared at her a moment, then shook his head, laughing. Very well, then. I surrender. Take me away, fair maiden, to your strange land of delights and wonders. Abby laughed along with him, then helped him gather his possessions and carry them down to the bus stop. In one hand, she carried the Venturi violin, just a violin now, Threnody no longer. She looked forward to hearing it again, now that its music would not be stained by the torment of innocent souls, 
she imagined the long winter nights to come, and Uncle Isaac playing a merry jig on his fiddle in the living room. It would be a good thing, a blessed thing, and she welcomed it. That was the one thing Lily and Anne she had never realized, she thought. It was true. Suffering shared could bring people together. But so could joy. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Whispers in the Wood in the Urban Legends Story Collection. It's available right now in paperback and ebook from Amazon.com, and it should be available in audiobook by March of 2018. You can also buy Whispers in the Wood as a standalone story in both the Kindle store and at Smashwords.com. And if you become a patron of my Patreon campaign, you can get a copy of the story for free. I didn't complete any new stories this week, mostly because I was clearing out the backlog on my audio recordings. At this point, I have completed the the behind-the-episode commentaries on everything through episode 136. I also recorded a commentary for episode 137, and I'll work on getting that edited and released this week. Looking back at the month of January, I wrote a total of 7,754 words over 10 days, averaging 775 words per day. That's a little better than December, but still really low for me. I spent 9.75 hours writing in January. Compared to December, my word count increased by 18%, and my writing time increased by 3%. I also spent about 23 hours on audio production and other business-related tasks. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Christina. This week I've added the audio commentaries for episodes 135 and 136 to the Patreon feed, as well as a new flash fiction piece called Eyes of Water, which is available to patrons at the $3 level and higher. To check out the reward tiers and make a pledge, just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. It's the very best way to support my work as an author. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester. Signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2009 and 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit Creative Commons. 
www.ghostsofthecoast.org.